Ideas in STEM Ed is a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center at UC San Diego, which works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. My name is Darren Lapomi, Professor of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering and Faculty Director of the Idea Center. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a forum for the discussion of innovative and inclusive approaches to teaching and mentoring, and to support the personal and academic flourishing and success of students in science and engineering. To learn more about the Idea Center, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu front slash idea. My guest today is Eric Mazur, Professor of Physics and Applied Physics at Harvard University. He is also a creator and entrepreneur in the area of technological resources for classroom teaching. He is known for his research in ultrafast optics and condensed matter physics, and also for his extensive work in teaching methodology known as peer instruction. Attending one of his lectures on teaching as a graduate student was one of the formative experiences of my professional life. He is a true pioneer in active learning in science and engineering education, and was practicing and espousing the benefits of flipped classrooms long before the word came into common usage. Eric, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Darren. I should say that I do use an active learning approach in my teaching and have done so exclusively since about 2017, um, even for freshman honor seminars. Um, but I hope you don't mind if I play devil's advocate uh, at times in this conversation, because uh, there will be a lot of uh, unconverted uh, individuals in the audience, and I want to make sure that all their questions are answered. By all means, I think uh, we should be skeptical. <laughs> so tens of millions of university degrees are awarded every year, and most STEM classes are taught using a model of a traditional lecture, with some percentage doing variations or some form of active learning. In 2021, why do you think there is any debate at all about how humans learn? Why is this issue so partisan? I think it's because we never get trained to teach, right? I mean, I, I remember when I stepped in the classroom, back in uh, 1984 when I became assistant professor, you know, I never even asked myself, how am I going to teach? I, I, I simply emulated the people that taught me. I didn't know any better. And, and because I had learned it that way, I assumed that's the way how we humans learn. And I'm sure that my professors, when they started lecturing me, made exactly the same assumption, and so did their professors, and you know, all the way back to, I guess, Bologna a thousand years ago. So I sure. think we, we, never, we never really pause to think about how we learned what we know, how we developed the skills that, that are so useful, and we simply make a very simplifying assumption. We learned it in a lecture, therefore my students are going to learn it. We don't realize that we learned it in spite of the way that we were taught. But hey, we became professors. So we were predisposed to want to learn the material. Most of our students are not going to be that way. So I think it's, it's in part because, you know, we, 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 are, we, we, are not ed, we are not trained to teach and we all fall into the same trap of projecting our own experiences onto the world around us. So I will have introduced you beforehand, and I think it's safe to assume that everyone in the audience has at least some firsthand experience with forms of, uh, with active forms of classroom teaching. Um, and also I'd like to point the audience to a video uh, of you um, uh, on YouTube, Confessions of a Converted Lecturer, which has now been viewed almost 200,000 times. Um, but I'd nevertheless like to like you to take a minute to describe what you mean by peer instruction, flipped classroom, and active learning, and maybe some differences in what those uh, that terminology uh, means. Sure. So, <clears throat> so where do I start? That's a, a loaded question because there's so much in there, right? Um, but um, let's start with the first term, peer instruction, which predates flipped learning and sort of is in parallel to, to active learning. Um, so as I told you a minute ago, I lectured when I started. It took something like seven years for me to discover that my lecturing, in spite of high valuations and in spite of students doing well on exams, was actually not very effective at 
meaningful learning. What do I mean by meaningful learning? My students were not able to solve problems that were very different from the problems that I'd given them before, which means they were not able to transfer their knowledge from the very narrow set of scenarios and circumstances that they had been trained with. If I asked them a word-based question about a concept that they could solve by manipulating equations, I discovered that you know they completely failed, which means they really had not internalized any of the information. They had simply sort of unpacked physics to a set of procedures and rules that they had memorized that made no sense to them. And um, that caused me to <laughs> to pause and then more or less by accident I discovered that if I move the information transfer out of the classroom in other words if I move the lecture out of the classroom rather than reading the notes to my students so to speak I ask them to read the notes and the chapter in the textbook before coming to class more about that later if you want um, and I, I could teach them much more effectively by teaching through questioning than through telling. So let's say it's a Tuesday. I've told you uh, to read chapter 22 before coming to class. In class, what happens is that I start maybe by talking a few minutes to set the stage. And then I ask a question. It can be an open-ended question. It can be a multiple-choice question. Typically, ask a conceptual question rather than a procedural numerical type of question. Students give an answer. I try to aim the questions in such a way that about, you know, half of them get the right answer and the other half obviously not. Ideally, I want the number of right answers to be somewhere between 30 and 70%. After they think about it, I give them time to think, I have them commit to an answer either by, uh, initially what we did is we used colored flashcards. And, uh, and then later came the clicker, which uh, you know, w was invented sort of to, to, to satisfy this teaching approach. And then more recently, you can do it on, your, on, your, on a web-based interface on your, on your phone. So I have them commit to an answer. And after they've committed to an answer, I tell them, find a neighbor around you who has given a different answer. I don't want them to talk to somebody who has the same answer. I want them to talk to somebody who has a different answer. And what happens is that the students very quickly engage in a discussion that is not just about the answer, but how do you get to that answer? Darren, what did mm -hmm. you answer? You, I, I had five newtons, and you say, I have ten newtons. How can that be? And, you know, and then one of us is likely to go, oh, yes, oh, I, of course, you're right. And that's essentially what I mean with peer instruction, students teaching each other in parallel. And, you know, if I have 300 or 250 students in my class, I cannot address each of their individual difficulties. But by pairing them up like that or putting them, you know, sometimes it's groups of three talking, they're very likely to help each other. So if you have a question where initially about 50% of the answers are right, after two or three minutes of discussion, that may go up to 80, 90, or even 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 higher. So it I is have like them magic. <laughs> it is like magic, exactly. So I have them vote again. And and you can actually see th the real magic is to see the aha faces, the aha moments in front of you. Oh, you know, you can actually see that visually in front of you in the classroom. And so I have them vote again, and then we wrap up. Either I could give the explanation, or even better, I can ask one of the students to provide his or her points of view. And because they're already engaged in, in, in discussion, they're much more likely to be willing to speak up uh, than, uh, than in a normal class. And then that cycle repeats until class time is up. So that's the basic model of peer instruction. And, and I think there's plenty of evidence everywhere right now that the learning gains, you know, go up dramatically. At one point, I was able to triple the learning gains uh, over what I obtained in a traditional uh, lecture-based class. So given the difficulty in doing something like a double-blinded randomized control trial, what is the quality of our evidence for the effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's not a, a double blind. Uh, it's not even you can't even really easily take the same students. Uh, I think if you if you if you Google P instruction 
on uh, on the internet there's a, there's an absolutely amazing number of paper that have appeared <laughs> only a tiny fraction written by me i think it's something like 10,000 hits uh on 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 google scholar and um I mean, there have been a number of meta-analysis putting all of it together, and I think they pretty unambiguously show that, 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 that learning increases. It's really hard to have the same students at the same time do the same, you know, the same material, one through passive lecturing and the other through any type of interactive uh, techniques such as peer instruction. Uh, but I think that even in the absence of such a completely double-blind study, which I think is simply not possible in an educational setting, uh, the evidence is, is pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Do you allow students to pick their own teams? What's the ideal size for a team? So, you know, I, peer instruction is something I developed in um, 1991. So, so 2021 is the 30th anniversary of peer instruction in September. We're just planning a, uh, a big conference to, to sort of celebrate that. Um, I have moved on. I mean, I've not moved on from the idea of students teaching each other. I mean, think about it. In any classroom, and I'm sure that in the, in the audience here, we have many people teaching. Who is the person who learns the most? What would your answer be, Darren? <laughs> the person who just learned a topic and are going from zero to one for a concept that they had never been exposed to. I would say you're close, but I, I would have said the teacher, right? I mean, we, the teachers, you, I, everybody who's listening here probably, you know, no matter how often we've taught the course, no matter, you know, how well we know our discipline, the act of teaching is a form of learning. It, it just forces you to not only internalize the knowledge you're trying to, you know, transfer to your students, except that knowledge can't be really transferred. Your students have to develop their own knowledge, but helping them develop that knowledge, um, you know, you are the one who is really, by articulating that knowledge, clarifying your own thinking. I mean, we all that's know so that, true. right? That's yeah, so and true. It's such a yeah, so, it's so such I think a common that's, experience. I know, exactly. So that is what's happening with two students. Let, let's say, you know, John and Mary are sitting next to each other. John has the wrong answer because he doesn't completely understand it. Mary has the right answer. They talk to each other, and Mary is is explaining it to John, and probably more likely, this is another reason why I think peer instruction is so successful, Mary is more likely to convince John than Professor Mazur in front of the class. Why? Because Professor Mazur learned such a long time ago, he has no clue anymore what goes on in the brain of, of a beginning learner, whereas Mary has only recently learned, so, so she's more effective. But here's the, 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 the I, I think what, what is so amazing about peer instruction is that it's not just John who benefits at the expense of Mary. By virtue of teaching, Mary gains too. So it's a win-win situation. Do you think that the, uh, that the professor as a coach, uh, that the instructor as a coach role um, degrades the importance of uh, the professor as a role model the professor as a uh, as an example of somebody who's mastered the material because maybe their speaking time goes from 100% in a pure traditional lecture down to maybe 15% of of classroom time in a in a flipped methodology do you is that something that uh, that that worries you or 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 maybe not not at all and uh, just think about it i mean um think about how how you learn things. So think about think about your PhD advisor, right? I mean, we, probably as professors, what the, the most instrumental time in our career was during our our, our PhDs, during our, our graduate studies, and um, and 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 in that period, 
the most important part is learning through apprenticeship, because that's what it really is, from your advisor and his or her group members. There is no lecturing, there is no listening. And, and still, I mean, I consider my PhD advisor a very important role model in my life. I never heard him lecture because I never took a course from him, never. Never. So he, he really was a coach. So I think I, I, I think you can still have, you know, th this this feeling of a role model with somebody who coaches you, maybe even more so um, than 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 when 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 it's just listening in a, uh, in, a in a lecture. I think the person who's whose ego benefits the most from lecturing is the lecturer himself. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I before I became a professor, I had um, a uh, romantic vision of uh, writing on the board and canceling terms like Zorro with you know chalk and just uh, how much fun that was going to be. And of course, I I did that for a while, uh, and now I'm, you know, now I'm I I'm adopting the 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 coach like uh, like role, uh, which is probably more fun and actually less stressful during the uh, during the performance that is the lecture. Isn't it, isn't it ironic that Socrates over 2000 years ago already said that we should teach by questioning rather than by telling? It's, so it's amazing to, how we've come uh, around. Yes. So there are parallels in law and business classes that use a case method. And I wonder if it's if peer instruction, active learning, flipped classroom are something that that STEM educators have uh, are maybe taking too much credit for because there are in a history class you have to read the chapter before coming uh same thing in in law business literature um is it are, are we latecomers to this uh mode absolutely i totally agree with that and and i'm 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 i'm, I'm very happy you you mentioned that as i was reflecting on 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 what i did back in 1991 which i thought was totally revolutionary and and i started to, you know i really start to think of education as a two-step process right one is information transfer the other is is getting is internalizing the 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 material extracting the knowledge developing the mental models the getting the aha moments and i realized that in my class i was putting all of the emphasis on that first step not on the second i threw it out that that later became known as the flipped classroom uh, movement, although I, I was not the one who invented that term. But then I realized that, in a sense, the case study method is a flipped teaching approach, right? You, got, you have to read the case before you come to class. And in class, you don't have the professor present the case to you. No, you, you debate um, the case. And um, it's very interesting, actually. I, I, I had long conversations with Derek Bock about, you know, former president of, uh, mm -hmm. of Harvard University and a, and a law professor about this, who, who, who told me the, the history of the case method. And it's very interesting. You see, what happened was that in the early, and that's, the case method is over 100 years old now, 120 years old. It was the, the early 1900s. What happened was that the then president of Harvard decided to diversify um, the student population at Harvard, which was very much a New England patrician family type uh, college, which was you know nowhere near what it's now. It was sort of a mediocre university. He decided to draw students from over the entire United States, Canada, even international. And the law school then realized, the law school at that time had, I think, three professors. Uh, Judge Langdell was one of them, and then there were two others. And Langdell realized that, you know, given the fact that students now came from all different geographical places, it was no longer possible to teach the law. Because the law in Texas is different from the law in Massachusetts, it's different from the law in, in uh, Germany, Canada, you name it. So instead, they decided to teach the practice of the law. 
And how do you teach the practice of the law is you give cases and let people interpret the law in order to solve the case. And then later the business school, I think, actually made that, that approach to teaching even more well-known globally than, than the law school at the time. And in a sense, I think active learning, peer instruction, this whole thing, is the same thing. It's not teaching physics. It's teaching thinking like a physicist or teaching chemistry versus thinking like a chemist. So I, you, you're totally right. Yeah, we are, we are probably relative latecomers and, and catching up to the fact that you have to roll up your sleeve sleeves and do things in order to learn. So the irony of you being one of the leaders of active learning um, over the last uh, three decades is that you yourself are a very engaging lecturer. I had the opportunity to, uh, to, to attend several of your scientific lectures over the years. And I wonder, um, I wonder if, you, if it's possible to adopt any kind of this strategy in a normal seminar. So if a lecture is not the best way to convey or to, to produce understanding, every week I go to a seminar in my department or somebody else's department. Should I have done pre-reading ahead of time? Should we, be, should we break up into small groups? Have, has your approach to, um, to scientific talks changed? It's great that you asked that question. Um, so... Let me tell you. First of all, I've now developed a number of colloquia where I, where I have inserted conceptual questions you know, to keep the audience engaged. You have to be very careful, though, because your audience is not students. They're peers, mostly, who have egos that are much bigger than that of a beginning student. So people don't like to be put on the spot. The good thing about peer instruction, it doesn't really put individuals on the spot in front of everybody. But what is very interesting is to discover that interactive, this interactivity works at all levels and people come out of a talk where they've been actively engaged, much more energized than, 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 than one in which they've just listened for an hour of, or you know, started texting and reading the news on their phone because they couldn't follow it anymore. So, so, so what about the lecture? Is the lecture something that is totally worthless? No, I don't think so. I, you know, and, 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 and maybe an hour-long lecture is, is, is no longer really worth our time. But, but certainly, I think the role of the lecture is to inspire people, to, to, to tell people, oh, you know, this might be something you want to look at in, in, in more detail. Um, so I, I think at the, at the professional level, Lectures will continue to go. Now, one of the things I've done, I have a, I have a, I've started recently a, a network of uh, physics high school teachers to, to address the, the shortage of physics high school teachers we have. And we have every month a talk given by typically a well-known speaker. And what we do is we record it beforehand and put it, in on, put it online in a platform where people can leave annotations and interact with each other to discuss the content of that talk. And then on a Saturday morning, instead of listening to the speaker speak, we meet with the speaker and I moderate a discussion in part based on some of the questions that were online. And now all of a sudden that hour that we have with the speaker is used in a much more engaging and I think much more beneficial and we, and we can get way beyond just purely the talk. So I think, yeah, there's probably a lot of, lot of improvements to do in the form in which we communicate with each other. I mean, think about all the meetings you and I go to where we're sitting in and having people just present PowerPoint slides to us, reports mm -hmm. of this, that, faculty hiring, whatever, reviews of faculty, you, you name it. Wouldn't it be better if we could read about that, and then, and then there's barely any time to discuss because you know yeah. people run over with the presentation. Would it be better if we could see the presentation, recorded or not, uh, beforehand or read the report, and then we get together to discuss it? I mean, it is a big cultural shift, but it's one in which I think our efficiency and our engagement will go up. There is some, it may surprise you to know that I've been a member of a Dutch thesis defense at University of Groningen uh, a few years ago. 
and the format of the defense surprised me because there was no live presentation. Uh, we were expected to read the thesis and then, as in a courtroom, question the uh, the candidate. And that had a... Uh, it, I felt that it was a, a more valuable exercise for me. After all, I was going to take this transatlantic flight in order to do this. So, you know, I better have read every word of the thesis and come up with questions and, and have a rich discussion. And I felt that that, that was better than our Q&A sessions in the States after, after an exam. So, so I don't know if you know, Darren, but I am Dutch. And I, 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 defend, <laughs> I, 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 I defended my PhD in the Netherlands. And it's quite an intimidating uh, ceremony where you have, you know, sort of 12 professors in their cap and gowns sit there <laughs> and... Uh, and interrog interrogate you for an hour and you have no idea what they're going to ask. It could be anything from what was in your thesis or the appended uh, uh, 10 thesis statements that you have. So, uh, so when I came to the U.S. and I went to the first thesis defense, I said, what is this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, you were talking about the difference between a seminar audience and a classroom audience and uh, ego, the idea of, of, of ego and not wanting to em embarrass people, you know, is, is implied there. Uh, do you have, ever have a situation um, where a student in a class is very shy, almost to the point of like paralysis, like um, uh, very anxious. This is, and, and they uh, might have social anxiety disorder. They may worry about coming to a class where they're forced to interact with their peers. Has that has that come up? Um, we talk a lot about inclusive teaching and uh, neurodiversity of our students. Um, is 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 that ever an issue? Well, I think I think it's probably more of an issue in a lecture-based class if you call on people. And in in the, for example, a case-based study, it could be really problematic for a student who is very introvert and afraid of speaking up. If you know you get called upon. Um, I think that in, 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 a, in an active learning class where it's mostly the students talking to each other, I think, um, I think you, you help mitigate that problem because you're not putting anybody in a the spot. They get lost in the, in the background noise of all of the 50, 80, 100, whatever number of students there are in the class. They're probably likely to sit next to people who they like. Um, and yes, even then, I occasionally see a student who is sitting in the back row and, and not being engaged. But what I typically do in the first few classes of the semester is that I'll, I'll this was when I still taught in, a, in an auditorium setting. I, I no longer do that. But when I taught in an auditorium, I would run towards the back of the class and engage the students who sat isolated, who then very quickly decide, well, I'd rather not talk to Professor Mazur. It would be much better if I could talk to another <laughs> student. And, and, and they reseat themselves. At the uh, at the earliest occasion that they that they have, that reminds me. Incidentally, I, I never answered your question about um, about the team size, right? So I, I I started telling that I I moved on. So so now I used actually team based learning in my uh, in my class, and and I formed the teams. So the teams in my class are four students with a couple of teams of three because, you know, the number of students might not be divisible by four. And, um, and, and, and I, on purpose, make sure that the teams are diverse in as many dimensions as I have data on. Gender, <clears throat> major, uh, self-efficacy, uh, incoming knowledge, and so on. So that, you know, students learn not only to learn from each other, but they also learn to get along with different personalities and different people, which I think we fail to do in academia, mm -hmm. and it's so important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What improvements have been made in terms of physical infrastructure of the classroom to accommodate active styles? So most rooms are still set up with fixed furniture and students have to crane their necks to talk to the people behind them. Yes, that's right. I mean, think about it. The, the, 
the learning, most learning spaces on campuses around the world are modeled on the Greek theater. <clears throat> the Greek theater was not developed as a learning space. It was developed as a performance space so mm. that everybody could hear the performers and, 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 and uh, see them. Um, and then somewhere, I guess, in medieval Europe, we adopted the performance space as a learning space, but learning is not a spectator sport. So I, I, I think the space itself tends to put the people in that, in that space in a, in a passive receiving mode, right? I mean, you sit down in an auditorium thinking, I'm going to observe and listen, not I'm going to do and, and, and be engaged. So I think adapting our, our learning space is crucially important. We just designed a new engineering building, which we're, we're supposed to go into last September. It didn't happen, so now hopefully this September we get to go there. And when the architect designed, uh, they made the initial designs for the place, they were all auditoria. I said, mm -hmm. no. I was the chair of the classroom committee. We don't want auditoria. Well, it was two-thirds auditoria then. I said, no, we don't want auditoria. <laughs> it was half. Finally, we got to the point that there's only one auditorium for larger events and everything else are, are spaces where, you know, students, even large spaces, you know, we can accommodate uh, hundreds of students around round tables and, uh, and they work together with the instructor, not, not the instructor being the focal point of the room, but the student or the, the unit of the, at the table being the focal point and the instructor going from one table to another. Well, the next hundred years or more of uh, Harvard students will have you to thank for, for being uh, the chair of the classroom committee for the new building. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, do you enforce attendance in your classes? No, no, no. Because, you know, I think what matters is not that the students bring their body to the classroom, but their minds to the classroom, right? And, and the only thing you can, of course, check off is their body, not their mind. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you enforce students to go to the classroom and they may come there, but, uh, but, uh, but it doesn't really help the learning. I was recently visiting a, uh, a, uh, a very innovative new engineering school in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And they, were having, they had trouble getting accredited because the government requires something they called seat hours, which literally is the students behind touching a seat. And you have to have a legal document showing that in order to become an engineer, you have so many seat hours. I mean, they had a much more innovative approach to teaching, which in, 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 in involved a lot of, uh, of active learning and learning by doing and learning by actually working on engineering problems that did not involve sitting in a classroom listening. So it didn't fit that model of accreditation that was based simply on attendance. So I think we need to get away from these metrics that are very simple. How, how do we learn? When do we learn best? We learn best when we are intrinsically motivated to learn, not when we're extrinsically motivated to learn. And Absolutely. therefore, it is our task as educators to create a learning environment where students want to participate. Not, they're not coming to class because I want them to come to class. Or I'm going to punish them if they don't. They want to come to class because it's fun. Innovation in teaching methodology often has friction with uh, institutional rules and methods for uh, evaluation and, uh, and promotion. Uh, for example, if, if a particular class of students has only ever seen a traditional lecture and that's what they want, then they may not rate uh, a you know they they may not score you highly on a student evaluation or a course evaluation. Um, if a uh, for promotion and tenure files uh, at at a campus in which a peer evaluation is to be made of uh, of the learning environment and they're used to evaluating it on the the basis of a, how well you deliver a traditional lecture, and they show up and you're doing active learning <laughs> during class time they might not know how to evaluate it. And this is something that um, 
where the the culture probably needs to change in order to accommodate these uh, new methodologies. Absolutely, and 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 I and I I I think that is a hurdle, right? I mean, we have put a system of, evaluate, of evaluation in place, evaluation of the students and evaluation of the teachers, that doesn't really tell us what we really care about, namely how successful are our students going to be in their future careers. And 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 change is difficult. And um now I have to say though that because of changes that have occurred in K through twelve education, I have many more students now who are very positively predisposed to active engagement and who who, who who not only enjoy being actively engaged in the classroom, but who almost demand it. They don't want to be um, they don't want to be lectured. So I, I think that slow. I mean, this is not something that we're going to change overnight. But slowly, I, I I think change is slowly taking hold. Do you think that the current university model has the right, particularly in an R1 institution, has the right balance between research and teaching? I don't know. Um, at, at the level of the individual faculty member, say you or, or me. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I mean, that's probably the only thing I can comment on because uh, that's my experience, right? My, my own experience. You see, I, I'm, I'm sort of a strange case, maybe, because I accepted the junior faculty at Harvard, never imagining to, to stay there. I, I, I wanted to go back to Europe. It was just a convenient way of, of extending my postdoc. Um, you know, after all, Harvard never gave tenure to, to anyone in those days. I mean, fewer than, I think, 10% of the junior faculty got tenure. So, so, so. Yeah, so tenure was not even, you know, a thought in my mind, which, in a sense, was very liberating, right? Because the way I looked at my my job then was, you know, I'm just gonna do, I'm just gonna have fun and do a good job, and I'm gonna do what I think is necessary, not what other think uh, is necessary. Of course, I realized that that's easier said than done, right? If you, if you are an institution and 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 you have no plans to go back to another continent, then then tenure becomes a a a big barrier to uh, to cross, and then the temptations of just doing what you think is expected of you, whatever that is, is is going to be very very big. Um, so I think that you know the the. The way we get evaluated as faculty in our one institutions, you and me, is mostly based on our research credentials, on the publications we we write, on the the grants we raise, on the graduate students we 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 graduate, PhD students we graduate, and you know if you're successful in 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 research, what happens? Well. You get more grants, you get more people joining your group, you get invited to give first invited talks and then keynotes and then plenary and then you get a fellowship and then you get awards. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of recognition. You do a lousy job teaching if you have tenure, no problem, you know, whoever is the chair is gonna try to assign you to some course where you do the least damage. Um, Suppose you do a good job teaching, what's the reward? Well, besides, of course, the intellectual reward and maybe the gratitude of some students, I think the only reward is more teaching. There, there is no, there is no, there's not the same type of, of, of reward system for good teaching as there is for, for good research. And I think as long as that's the case, we're gonna, you know, you and I are going to put, put our main effort into making sure that we get recognized for our research because that's where we're getting evaluated and that's where most of the rewards are. The other danger is that you have two different types of faculty 
faculty te- and in some universities it's happening with more and more you know there are more and more institutions that are hiring adjunct faculty who do nothing else but teaching it creates a two-class system and further you know separates teaching from research which i think would be another problem so maybe it's time to really revise the university model maybe maybe i, I you know for me it's easy to say this at the end of my my career but maybe it's time to get rid of tenure Mm-hmm. I mean, you keep hearing it's for academic freedom, it's for academic freedom, it's for academic freedom. I, I'm not sure I buy that anymore. Uh, I mean, certainly for people like Noam Chomsky, but for physicists and engineers and chemists, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I would agree with that. And, I, and I, I think that you and I can probably point to People we know who have tenure and are, are, are simply no longer, you know, solidly in, in their seat and commanding, uh, you know, and at the forefront of research or teaching. So, and I think that's a problem. Um, so maybe finding ways of keeping people, I, I know, I think I'm going to make myself very unpopular saying this, but finding ways of keeping people more accountable, I think is really, really important. Mm-hmm. So when you are good at teaching, though, there are some um, avenues like uh, app development, so perusal um, and textbook writing, uh, which you have engaged in um, to develop the pedagogy side of your career. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about those and your your motivations for uh, electronic resources and also textbook writing. Yes. <clears throat> so, so the textbook writing was actually a consequence of a program I developed back in the late '80s called "The Essence of Physics." I mean, I was always, I've always been, you know, interested and attracted to technology, and and I started using in in my uh, teaching, uh, you know, the computer very early on, before it was even able I- I- possible to easily project a, a computer screen. And um, and and then I got asked to to develop this program, and and that sort of launched me on the on the publisher circuit. And they asked me to write a textbook, and I thought, oh, I, I can probably write a textbook in five years. I'll 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 do that. And uh, and it took twenty two years. <laughs> I uh, I realized uh, while I was writing the textbook that to make a textbook that was different that was really trying to rethink things from the ground up rather than just preparing another clone is an enormous amount of work an enormous amount of work i i'm quite sure i will not engage on another textbook <laughs> would you would you recommend the activity to a younger colleague <laughs> probably not especially i think because or, or or not until the publishing world find its finds its footing again. I mean, we're, we're, I think we're in the middle of a huge disruption of the publishing uh, industry, which is not very different uh, from what happened first with audio and, you know, iTunes, Spotify, and so on, and then with video, Netflix, Hulu, you name it. I think what is, what is happening right now is that... Um, Publishers are sort of in the same position as um, record label companies, and and mm-hmm. and and all of so. I th- I think that is so in flux right now that I would be very hesitant to advise anybody to sign a contract with a with a publisher that, especially if it involves an enormous amount of work, and the textbook is an enormous amount of work. But the interesting thing was that you know shortly after I signed that. Um, textbook agreement I started to think about more about education I developed peer instruction I wrote my book on peer instruction in between um, and and also I started to develop a uh, platform for interactive polling in the classroom learning analytics which was actually um, a startup that um, uh, I founded I forgot exactly when 2010 maybe um, and um, and essentially, I, I didn't. I, I, I'm making a piano that I founded this startup. I, I did, but it was never my intention. I developed a platform 
which I used in my class, and then others saw the platform and said, hey, can I use this too? And I said, sure, of course you can use it. And at some point, it became such a large number that, you know, we needed support, we needed all kinds of things, and, and that, that's when we decided to found the company. It's not that I had that plan in my mind. It mm -hmm. was the, the platform was there before. And perusal is the same thing. I, when I switched to team-based learning, to team and project-based learning uh, a number of years ago, I wanted to solve the lecture problem for once and for all. I wanted to find a way to, to bring some of that social... Um, interaction between the students to the out-of-class component. And I had a graduate student who was very interested in machine learning and in social annotation. So I made that her PhD thesis and out of it came sort of a kludge together platform that, that enabled that for my class. And the same thing happened. People saw it, so can I use it too? And, you know, at some point we thought, well, we better, we better um, you know, put some structure on that. And, and, and uh, together with a postdoc of mine, I, 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 I found it uh, perusal. And wow, now there's close to 2 million people using it. It's pretty amazing. That's fantastic. So it's, it's very, very, very gratifying. I wish... I could tell you, but I can't. I wish I could tell you I planned it that way. I didn't. <laughs> so I want to be respectful of, of your time. Um, I do have one final question. Are there aspects of remote learning that you're going to take with you after all COVID restrictions are lifted? Absolutely. Let me tell you something, Darren. I did my best teaching ever next last year. And... Um, I got connected to my students in ways that I have never been connected. I had a class of 80 students. I knew each and every student by name. And I felt such a closer connection to each and every one of them than I've ever felt to my students. Now, maybe the pandemic is partly to blame for that in the sense that, you know, we all felt in the same boat. There was more empathy and so on. But at the same time, I think that what happened was that over the summer last year, I spent, since I couldn't travel anywhere anyway, I spent the entire summer thinking, how can I structure my class to take best advantage of the online environment? And what I ended up doing was three things. One is that I decided to um, sort of personalize the instruction. Um, so one way of doing so first of all I, I i i realized now that we're online synchronous doesn't mean that much anymore right if you're in a physical classroom you have to book the classroom and then you have to be there all at the same time when the classroom is available but you know online zoom is always available and you're not going to go run into a problem because somebody else is using the zoom no everybody can use zoom at the same time so so that gives a lot more freedom in scheduling and besides maybe there are a lot of activities that can be done asynchronously rather than synchronously and self-paced rather than instructor-paced. So I wrote, made a list of all of the activities in my class, all of them, in and out of class, everything that my students need to do in order to you know, satisfy the course. And I asked myself for each and every activity, does this have to be synchronous? Could it be done asynchronously? Does it have to be instructor-based or could it be self-based? And you know what? Actually, the only reason I retained a couple of synchronous parts was because the registrar demanded that we have a certain <laughs> amount of face-to-face -face synchronous time. And so I did schedule two time slots where, you know, all the students had to be on Zoom. But the second thing I did was rather than having one Zoom room for the entire 80 class students, I had each team make its own little Zoom room. And then they would work on an exercise. Before they get together, they work on it individually. And then when they're together, they work on it together. And when they agree, they call somebody from the teaching team in. So on Slack, we had a channel that said, please join our team. They would say, team 15 is ready. And then the first one to see it would check it off and we'd hop on their Zoom room. And so it felt like a four-person class, even though it had 80, 80 students. And, and I think that that made it almost feel like a small seminar rather than a, a larger introductory class. 
And and the third thing I did was was adopt specifications grading, which you know that's a whole other podcast probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 if you or your listeners are interested in, just Google yes Virginia. There's a better way to grade, and you you you'll find an article inside Higher Ed that tells you more about it. Those three changes were crucial. The specifications grading was a game changer. I'm definitely going to keep that, and you could do that online or in person. It's, you, you don't need the online environment. But what I'm going to do this coming year, finally the, the plans are gelling in my head, is I'm going to give students a choice. They can come to the classroom and sit around in a table uh, with four at the table, or they can get together on Zoom. When they're ready, they do the same thing. On Slack, they say, hey, please join can somebody join the team to go over our work? If they're in the classroom, I'll run to the classroom. If they're on Zoom, I'll stay in my office just below the classroom and join them on Zoom. The great benefit of Zoom is they can get together whenever it suits the team rather than whenever the classroom is available. Mm-hmm. I'll report back to you next year to see how that experiment goes. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of it. excited. <laughs> I'm kind of excited by it. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Eric. This was a wonderful uh, opportunity uh, to chat with you for an hour. And um, I wish you all the best of luck in, uh, in the new building and new, class, uh, new um, uh, teaching approaches. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you, Darren. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Ideas in STEM Ed, a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center in the Jacobs School of Engineering at UC San Diego. This episode was edited and engineered by Sky Lee with theme music written and performed by John Viviani. Title art was created by Caitlin Wong. Special thanks to Sarah Eckert for guest booking and marketing. The Idea Center works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. To reach us for guest suggestions and other feedback, please send an email to ideadirector at eng.ucsd.edu. And to learn more about our programs, visit jacobsschool.ucsd.edu front slash idea. As a final note, the views expressed by me or the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the Idea Center, the Jacobs School of Engineering, or UC San Diego. See you next time.